There was a point in time when we were working with a lot of uh, teenagers that were uh, coming to us with a diagnosis of bipolar or formerly known as as manic depressive. depressive. And um, I don't know why it changed. And we're going to ask our guests why that changed. But the bipolar thing was popular for teenagers for a minute. And like, and you parents, you've heard me say this before. Um, I find it very rare that a lot of the uh, uh, that the number of kids who are coming in with diagnosis of things are actually dealing with it reactive attachment disorder borderline personality disorder and bipolar these are things I hear more of than I see in children but I have worked with kids with true bipolar and it's something and it's it is it's very difficult, I have found, for families to feel like they're able to keep their sanity when they have a loved one who's dealing with bipolar. My guest today is Michael Pippick. I have interviewed him before, and he, uh, during the Winter Symposium series, so if you've listened to that interview, get ready for more of the good stuff. But if you haven't, the reason why I've had him back is because that was a short interview, and I want to get more from Michael. So, today's conversation is owning your bipolar with Michael and parents I want to welcome you to Beyond Risk and Back. Michael thank you so much for being a guest on Beyond Risk and Back again. Well thank you very much for having me Aaron and uh, it's uh, you know I, I'm, I'm so gratified that uh, that uh, you have me on your show but more importantly because uh, I believe that this is such an important topic uh, particularly when it comes to children so thanks again for having me on your program. Well, and like I said, like I was just saying in the intros that, you know, we had you on before, but uh, but partway through the conversation, I knew I had to have you back. We are talking about an important conversation. We're talking about a term that's thrown around carelessly. And when people are really suffering from it, um, the whole family suffers from it. This is not, oh, my kid has, the family's got it. And I'm not saying they're all dealing with it internally, but they are all dealing with it and everybody feels like they're losing their minds. So we need to talk about it openly, courageously, and communicate some of the solutions for it. But And before we go into that, Michael, talk about your experience, your background, and how you ended up writing uh, this, this book, Owning Bipolar, which we're going to talk about in detail. So please talk about how you ended up where you are. Well, I've been a practicing psychotherapist for over 30 years now. And during that period of time, uh, I've worked with uh, adolescents and adults doing individual and uh, with respect to adults, of course, couples therapy, but also with uh, teenagers, uh, mostly middle schoolers and high schoolers uh, with uh, individual therapy approaches and also family involvement, which I think is really uh, necessary when you're working with kids and Hopefully, when you work with adults, you have some opportunity as well to have some uh, family involvement or marital involvement if it's appropriate. And I've treated a variety of clinical disorders over that period of time. Uh, but uh, several years ago, um, just as you mentioned that you've received um, you know, referrals to your program and come across to kids and, and families where bipolar was uh, presented or uh, as, as, a, as a real diagnosis or a possibility of one. Uh, there was a period of time when I was receiving referrals from local uh, inpatient facilities of young people, teenagers, 
with a primary diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And I'm, I was obviously familiar with it, but um, as I got um, more of these referrals, I kind of came, um, it, it felt like all within maybe a year or so, uh, I felt that was kind of unusual, first of all, from, from my experience to have so much about bipolar coming in at one time that it uh, resulted in me feeling the need to investigate um, what bipolar is all about and help us to treat it beyond what I was taught. And um, there was also, and I mentioned in the book, Owning Bipolar, in the opening of the book, um, an experience I had with uh, a young man, uh, I think at the time he was about 16 years old or so, and came to me uh, as one of those individuals that, that, were, that were being referred at the time. And he was alongside uh, my office with his mother. And um, he had done really well in the inpatient treatment. It was about really discussing at that point how we were going to continue treatment for his benefit so he could thrive going forward. And at the time, his mother was uh, sitting very quietly, sort of looking off to the the distance, obviously in in thought and and some measure of concern. And she started getting kind of teary-eyed. And and I mentioned something to her about being proud of her son. And she, she said she was, but she said she was also terrified because she didn't feel like there was enough available for her to really understand what bipolar was all about and what she needed to do to help her son and, uh, and, her, and herself and her family uh, going forward. And, and I, was, I was really struck by how uh, poignant that whole moment was and how she expressed that need to me. And, uh, and I went forward helping her and her son, but and again, it was a moment when I felt, hey, I, I really got to know bipolar better than, than, uh, than I felt like I had at that moment. And as I delved into the research, I began to realize what I, what I now share uh, practically every day of my, of my practice, one way or another, that uh, bipolar disorder is a very difficult, insidious, and often fatal psychiatric problem. And uh, by fatal, I mean um, that people in general, uh, adults and adolescents and children that have bipolar disorder are 20 to 30 times more at risk for suicide than we see in the general population, 20 to 30 times higher. Not only is, is, is that, you know, to me, so striking, but coming out of uh, the DSM, which is sort of the psychiatric handbook of disorders, uh, it says there that uh, we believe that one-fourth of all suicides may be related to bipolar disorder. And in this country alone, that's over 10,000 lives lost every year. So I'm starting to think, wow, this, is, this problem is even worse than I could have ever imagined. And then something else struck me, that most people with bipolar di- uh, disorder are misdiagnosed. About two-thirds of all people are misdiagnosed that have uh, bipolar as their primary problem. And the average time from an initial bipolar mood episode to the time that somebody is actually treated for bipolar disorder, the average time is about 10 years. So it occurred to me that, my goodness, how many people are being missed? How many people, uh, myself as a clinician at that time, over the years, maybe uh, missed that diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So, you know, I, I kind of come to you humbly, if you will, uh, and to your audience to say, hey, you know, it's not like I know all this great stuff and, and other clinicians don't. 
I think I was among that group of people early on in my career who were taught that all you had to do for people with bipolar disorder is try to get them on medication. And if you could do that, then uh, there's, uh, that's all you can do for them. And between that and uh, I think a real history of not really understanding what bipolar is or how to properly identify it among other clinical problems, particularly for young people, we've, we've sort of over time seen this crisis of people with undiagnosed, untreated bipolar disorder who, uh, who struggle through the mental health system or maybe give up uh, trying to seek treatment because they're not being treated properly and their symptoms are out of control and not maintained properly. And family members, parents, and uh, certainly parents of children, spouses, and others uh, of adults who are uh, mystified and frustrated and they feel like giving up too. So all of these kind of factors added together and really um, have motivated me to go forward and develop a program for people in our community, for patients and families uh, struggling with bipolar disorder, and then uh, ultimately to write this book and, and, and share these opportunities with people like your listeners today. Okay, so I, I'm... I am substantially concerned. I think I think you have you have uh, put the put the fear of this uh, into us for good reasons. You know, you're talking about one fourth of all, twenty five percent of suicides, uh, two thirds of people with bipolar have been misdiagnosed, and that there's ten years on average without treatment. So, so I, this is this is a big deal. This is a concern. So, let's get back to some grassroots for the parents who are listening. Um, and talk about what is what does bipolar look like? What are the symptoms that if you if your if your child is doing this stuff and you haven't or or you think they might, what is it we're seeing that should make a parent go, you know what? I wonder if I should ask a psychiatrist or a therapist about bipolar. What it, what would I be seeing to to for me to have that concern? Okay, that that's a great question. Uh, it, but it starts with uh, a bit of a, a caveat, and that is that, and I think this is true in most psychiatric disorders, most of the research for bipolar disorder is done with adult uh, psychiatric patients or subjects. Uh, and, and so there's so much more available evidence that pertains to adult persons with bipolar disorder than it does with younger persons and children. Uh, so so there, there's some sort of disclaimer there, but what, what we know basically comes out of this sort of uh, this uh, pool of research, which is dominated by adult subjects. So I want to talk a little bit broadly about what bipolar is, if that's okay, kind of get to the signs and symptoms, and then we can talk more specifically about adolescents and children and what to expect from them. Okay, so I want to make sure that that's clear because some of the things you hear may or may not exactly apply to those younger uh, individuals. Basically speaking, bipolar disorder means two emotional or mood poles. Just like we have the North Pole and the South Pole, and that typically for us, uh, that means uh, that represents like the furthest points on the, on the globe. Bipolar represents the furthest points of a mood state. One side, what we typically or generically called mania, and there's variations of mania, including hypomania, which is a little shorter and sometimes less consequential. And then you have psychotic mania, which is sort of the, the, the you might say, the very worst version of mania. 
But generically speaking, speaking, there is mania on the one side, and we could talk about those symptoms. On the other side of that pole is major depression. Not, not the blues, not minor kind of feeling sad or feeling down or even uh, periods of loss and grief. Very deep, very dark experiences of depression that lasts several days in a row and really constitutes uh, a deep sense of hopelessness, uh, a loss of motivation, a loss of self-esteem, um, and, and very often uh, thoughts of death or even suicidal thoughts and actions. So these extremes are what we're talking about. They are extreme mood swings, not minor ones that most people experience as they go through the stresses of everyday life. On the manic question that's come up really quick about that is that knowing that there's one fourth of all suicides attributed to that major depressive, which you're talking about lasting several days. Mm-hmm. I heard something, and I know when I'm hearing it, when I'm thinking it, I've got some parents out there who are hearing it and thinking it as well. So I want to make sure I put voice to that. If you know that this is a several day process, can you wait it out? Now, I ask that question knowing that there's a lot of suicide attached to this, but what happens after that four days? Do they go right back into the mania side or do they kind of slip back into the, uh, the, the functional functionality behaviors of everyday life and the episode goes up and down or is it a constant up and down? You can have different variations on a case-by-case basis as far as that space and time. And like I was mentioning with adults um, and, and where we get most of our research from bipolar disorder, and, the, and certainly this applies to the adults that I have treated with bipolar, is that they can, uh, they can have their periods of depression go uh, days, weeks, maybe even a month or two before they emerge out of it. Uh, and we're talking about without treatment now. If they have treatment, obviously that changes that. Um, and then their periods of mania can go on for many days or weeks or even a month or so um, uh, in time. For some people, they can go from one episode to the other. But most people have a break in between, so to speak. And we call that the baseline mood zone. And in that baseline, they can feel whatever it is that they would recognize as feeling okay. Maybe they don't feel great. Maybe they don't feel depressed, but they feel yeah, kind of neutral, kind of okay, kind of fine. Maybe they're experiencing exhaustion from either of those episodes. And, but there can be a protracted period of time where they really don't have those bipolar symptoms um, that we see specifically in those episodes. Now, when it comes to kids, however, what we typically see is more rapid cycling. You can have that in adults again, but more often in kids, we see those those changes in moon could be very rapid um, the, the earlier they are in, in that process, the earlier they are in age and the earlier they are in the process of the disorder. Um, and, and they can still have those in-between periods. So when, when a person goes from one episode to the next, they certainly can bounce around and that becomes a very obvious problem for a lot of people. But I do think that one of the reasons why bipolar disorder goes undiagnosed, unnoticed, is because somebody can actually be in that in-between, that baseline state for a long period of time. Okay, so we've got a a significant amount of time of the baseline state. 
Everybody mm-hmm. calms down. The family starts to go, who that was intense. You talked about treatment. If we have family, actually, before, before I ask this question about treatment and some of the things that we can start to do once we recognize, I want to know what is being misdiagnosed? Is there something in the DSM that looks a lot like bipolar and they're being diagnosed that instead? Or are they just being called, they've got depression, they've got clinical depression? What are we missing? How is this being misdiagnosed? Well, on two fronts, uh, and maybe three come to think of it when when you look at that baseline, as I just mentioned. Uh, First of all, on the depression side, um, that major depressive episode in bipolar is, uh, can be the same as what we would call unipolar, meaning one pole, or non-bipolar depression. So major depression can be either bipolar or non-bipolar. So on the depression side, and a lot of people do seek treatment when they're in uh, that depressed state, obviously. Uh, very often they come to see people like myself uh, for uh, psychotherapy services, or they go to see a psychiatrist for medications and that sort of thing, specifically for depression. Because they are in a depressed state, or maybe most recently they have had a run of depression. And that seems to be what is really focused. Uh, very often will somebody come to my office and say, well, I've been dealing with depression. I feel really terrible. I've had a lot of losses in my life and so forth. It's easy, if you will, to just kind of get into those presenting symptoms without uh, really looking into the history of that person from a, from a more complete uh, standpoint uh, with respect to their mood states and how that might change. You know, what's life like when you're not depressed? What's life? Have you ever been really happy? Have you been really excited? Have you had moments where um, people really noticed a change in your character? All kinds of elucidating questions that can maybe open up a discussion about that manic side of bipolar so that we don't miss that. We don't just treat the depression because there's, there's several inherent problems with that. And, and, and what we want to look for with mania uh, basically are periods of time when a person has uh, perhaps really what we call grandiose feelings, elevated self-esteem beyond what is reasonable. They really think tremendously of themselves. They think they're on top of the world. They just feel a rush of energy. And along with that rush of energy, a rush of feeling like they're bulletproof in life, that uh, they have uh, a a run of uh, ideas, what we call pressured thoughts very often. We see that in in older kids, maybe not so much younger kids, but they can have pressured uh, speech where they try to get out all of their ideas at once and try to get everybody's attention. There's just this flush of activity. Um, Alongside of that is what we would call distractibility. And sometimes that gets confused with ADHD. And we can talk about that if you want, because I'm sure that's concerned for a lot of parents in particular. But uh, they can get so focused on what they believe they need to do in this period of, of, of activity and energy and ideas, and they just feel really, really great. And they just go for it. And what we call goal-directed activity, which sounds like a really good thing. We should all be goal-directed, right? But their goals are, are uh, you know, not always comporting with, uh, with the, uh, the reality around them. And they suddenly become experts in everything, and they become driven to this sort of thing. They can, uh, they can stay up uh, for nights on end, what we call decreased need for sleep, which I have to point out is different from insomnia. Insomnia is when you try to sleep. 
you can't fall asleep or you fall asleep and you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. And with people in this manic uh, condition, they don't want to sleep. They feel so much energy. They feel great. They want to get all of these things done. In the case of adults, they'll want to clean their house and fix the car and write the great American novel all at once at three o'clock in the morning. They feel this just really, uh, uh, like I said, this rush of energy uh, that, that just feels like they can't deny. And how long does this, does this last? Does this have the same kind of shelf life as the depressive side? Oh, yes. And sometimes longer. Sometimes wow. even longer. It can exceed even a depressed state. And, and may I say too, Aaron, this is the time where people engage in typically in very high-risk behaviors and activities. One common one is uh, shopping sprees. They spend an inordinate amount of money. They run up their credit cards. They, they blow their paychecks and that sort of thing. Um, and, 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 and of course, when you can go online and buy anything, that's, uh, you don't even have to go down to the mall and go shopping, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, people that live with somebody with bipolar will come home one day and notice all these boxes on the front door or in the living room or whatever, because they decided that, uh, you know, they needed all of this stuff and they feel really great about doing it. Or they can engage in uh, other really uh, pernicious type of behaviors, um, uh, maybe an increase in, in indiscriminate sexual activity or alcohol and drug binges, um, or they can uh, just any kind of high-risk activity to put themselves and others in danger wherein, when they're in this manic state. So it can be, it can be really, really, really difficult uh, to live with, and it can be difficult to kind of break through, if you will, uh, with, with any sense of reason for that individual and what they're trying to do. And oftentimes when you do do that, if you are a family member, it'll be met with some kind of hostility. And then that person can go from feeling great and, and, uh, and wonderful and on top of the world to being very irritable. And what we call Is a dysphoric kind of mania. Say that again, a what kind of mania? A dysphoric. Dys- so, so the other kind I was talking about was like euphoria, euphoric mania. Dysphoria. Euphoric or dysphoria in mania is, is still mania but it's marked by high levels of irritability, agitation. Uh, they can become verbally hostile. Uh, you know, most people with bipolar disorder don't act out violently, but a few do. And, uh, and that's, that's a time when they can become very, very dangerous to others as well as themselves. And now a word from our sponsors. As a suicide and abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health issues, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. And after nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, he now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life. Johnny Crowder is the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, and I met up with him to talk about what he's created. And honestly, parents, I think every teen, every person who suffers from anxiety or depression or any mental health issue should have Cope Notes on their phone. Check this out. How did you come up with Cope Notes? Where did all this come from? It's a classic entrepreneur story of someone looking for something for a decade, realizing it doesn't exist, and then fashioning one out of pure frustration 
that the option wasn't available before. Yeah, so how does it work? The way I picture it is that people are getting a text a day or like what's happening? Yeah, so we'll send a user one text a day, random time. You don't know when you'll get it or what it'll say. And these texts are psychology facts or advice or a question that you can respond and journal to. And over time, we're just trying to help you mold your brain into something that works with you instead of against you. Instead of us throwing someone on our back and carrying them, we want to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can carry themselves. Because independence is the goal, right? When something happens, you don't want to turn to something and say, fix me. You want to go, I know what to do to handle this now. So the, the concept of it being cope notes, are you seeing this as a, a healthy coping mechanism? Or is this to replace the, the old bad ones? It's an answer to bad habits compounding on each other over time. So just like we can accidentally turn to the wrong thing over and over again, Cope Notes presents you with a new thing every day. So Cope Notes isn't the resource. We're connecting you with 150 other ways to think about what you're going through. So you can actually buy it for someone else and it starts showing up on their phone? So our gift subscription is one of our most popular options. And it you can personalize it. You can say, you know, from mom, love you. Or you can leave it anonymous and that person will start receiving the text messages right away. What's the feedback been like, Johnny? That's the part that's really been the most encouraging for me, I think. People have made massive decisions in life based on one of our texts. And sometimes it's so clearly from the user's interpretation of the text. It just mentions popcorn and someone checks themselves into rehab for an eating disorder. Is there a Facebook page that people can check into your community? We have a public Facebook page. It's just Cope Notes. It should be pretty easy to find. Is this going around the world? I got international listeners. We're number one in Australia, number three in Canada. Like, are they going to be able to do this? Yes. Believe it or not, even though you live in another country and it's text messages, you would think that it would be really complicated, but we have an international system set up. We're in 75 countries across the globe right now. So odds are wherever you live, we're already serving people in your country. That's Johnny Crowder, lead singer of Prison and the founder of Cope Notes. To activate your two free weeks of Cope Notes, go to beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Dot com. That's beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Go get your free two weeks. Okay, let's get back to the program. Is this a chicken and an egg question or is it, does this cycle promote itself and propagate itself? Like does, does the mania produce the depression and then to counter the depression, the person actually is, uh, the, the, the mania is triggered or is that irrelevant to the fact that there are dysfunctional chemical processes taking place in the, in the brain? So I guess I'm asking, is this environmental or neurological? It's, it's very neurological. Okay. And, and it's the, the okay. cause of bipolar disorder. There are several causes, but the fundamental and predominant cause is genetic. So we know mm -hmm. that, that uh, bipolar disorder is, is really located in a person's DNA and they inherit that through their family genetic line. Okay. What it, what it ultimately does, Aaron, is it influences the development of the brain to handle emotional regulation. And uh, these changes okay. are typically internal. Now, internal changes can be influenced about, uh, by what's going on in that person's environment 
or what's going on in their life, if they're having a run of losses or what have you, certainly that can have its, its effect. A lot of people ask me, does trauma cause bipolar disorder, for example? And, and the answer to that is basically no, it does not actually cause it, but it certainly could make it worse, let's say. So it could exacerbate it, but we are literally talking about that a person is born with a, uh, a dysfunction of emotional regulation. Like there's, a, there's a, a pressure valve that doesn't exist. That's absolutely true. And I think that's such an important thing to understand for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one reason, uh, and I think uh, this is so important for parents in particular, but bipolar disorder is nobody's fault. If you have a genetically based medical problem of any kind, it's not your fault. It's not. It's not I'm going to need you to say that. I'm going to need you to say that again because you broke up. You said bipolar disorder is. Bipolar disorder is fundamentally a genetic problem, and it's so important to understand that for a couple of different reasons. One reason is that people, particularly parents, I think, need to know that having bipolar in their lives or having a loved one with bipolar is nobody's fault. It's not the fault of that individual. It's not the fault of, let's say, the parent or any other loved one in the family. Nobody did something to cause this disorder. It was, it was passed down. Uh, in that person's genes. Now, I uh, one time I had a community meeting and somebody said, well, can I be mad at my ancestors for giving this to me? And I said, well, if that helps, yeah, go right ahead. But but really, it's, it's really nobody's fault any more than any other kind of inherited medical issue, or for that matter, your eye color or your, your body type or whatever that is that, that comes about uh, in your genes. Bipolar We're not dealing with, with willingness. We're dealing with capability. Well, absolutely. And, that's, and this is really why I call my book Owning Bipolar, because while it's nobody's fault, it's certainly ours to take ownership of and to take responsibility for through understanding and acceptance, because it'd be a very difficult thing, obviously, to accept uh, in the individual and, in the, and very often in the loved ones uh, in that person's life. So yes, it does affect the brain's ability to handle emotion, uh, but there are very, very good treatments uh, available to make that happen, both from a medical side, but also from a therapy side as well. And if we bring all of these factors together, um, you know, and accept that, that this disorder is active in our lives, but there is a way to manage it, and a person can uh, enjoy life uh, having bipolar, but not being dominated by bipolar, uh, then we can do many, many good things. And that is the good news, above all. But we've got to get through that, what I call 10-year gap in treatment that we talked about earlier, that average of 10 years. We have to understand what denial is and acceptance of, of, of bipolar and what the treatments are, and really have, as you mentioned earlier, honest conversations about what bipolar is and what we can do about it, um, and, and, and work through uh, any fears or concerns that, uh, that relate uh, to the condition in terms of what we understand about it, but also all of the available misinformation around bipolar in those treatments as well. You know, not just, not just uh, uh, struggling with this and, and suffering from this. It sounds utterly exhausting, but having a family member who's going through these just 
absurd highs and lows and watching them just like roller coaster through life sounds exhausting as well. Now, I, I have to ask because when we talk about diagnosing and we talk about children, there's a, a practice to not diagnose a child until they've reached the age of 18 with something uh, of this level of, of acuity at times. And I'm wondering, is this something because it's a, a neurological dysfunction? Are you seeing this type of behavior through infancy and through childhood? Or does this emerge in adolescence as uh, hormones are kicking in and the brain is going through a massive change? So more often than not, I believe, uh, just as you said in the latter, that we would see these symptoms tend to manifest actively in adolescence because of hormonal and other developmental changes that are going on. Uh, the confusion with that very often is it could be mistaken, as we mentioned, for other disorders or just uh, adolescence gone haywire, you know, that, um, that, uh, you know the, 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 that the child is going through high school and, or middle school and there's all kind of social conflicts, as we know, that are very typical for that, that time. But, but these symptoms tend to be much different and much beyond what we would expect developmentally. So we have to, I think, be very astute about that to see those differences as they present themselves uh, compared to what we would see as more typical kinds of adolescent conflicts uh, going forward. As far as prepubescent children, yes, di uh, bipolar disorder is present as well very often in these children. It may be hard to recognize and diagnose, and I think harder still to to really make that diagnosis and accept it, not just from the provider standpoint, because very often I know that my colleagues will avoid making that diagnosis for one reason or another, but also from the parent and family side, as they you know, are confronted with the possibility that their child has a lifelong psychiatric disorder that needs treatment. You know, um, All parents want to believe that their kids can outgrow anything. I certainly do as a parent myself. So I can really understand that if a doctor tells me my child has a condition, you know, I'm, I'm going to, first thing I, well, is he going to get better? How is he going to get better? Is he going to outgrow this? And people don't outgrow bipolar disorder. It actually gets worse over time if untreated. But yes, it is present in children. We do have the research to, to uh, support that concept. And I think it's important to really get down into the, ne the necessity of, of diagnosis and treatment as soon as possible. Because if we can do that as soon as possible, that's the kind of early intervention that can really help that young person grow and thrive rather than facing terrible mood swings and all of the possible consequences um, like an increased uh, chance of suicidal thoughts and actions, increased chance of alcohol or drug abuse going forward increased chance of social and academic problems going forward. And a lot of these pro problems can be mitigated or eliminated if we have early intervention. All right. So now let's talk turkey. Let's talk treatment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I know that if a parent is seeing this and experiencing this in their child, um, and maybe the child is already going to a therapist, uh, you know, and the parent starts a conversation with the therapist, their own personal therapist is going to have some 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 process to to help the the child, the parents, the whole family deal. But I want to know from you, Michael, what are what are some of the treatment things that you do with your clients who are dealing with bipolar? And how we start in what I call the pre-stabilization phase 
there's three phases. If it, let me just explain that the first phase is pre-stabilization, the second is stabilization, and the third is post-stabilization. And I talk with more detail about what that is in the book on owning bipolar. So what we're talking about right now is in the pre-stabilization phase. Um, I would first of all advise parents that if there is any concern in terms of your child's mood and the way that your child responds to life situations that seem to be excessive, it's important to consult with mental health professionals who are familiar with mood disorders in ch with children or adolescents, depending on their basic age and developmental stage. Again, important to find mental health providers who specialize in working with kids, who understand mood disorders. And, and if there is a, uh, the, the suggestion of bipolar or one of your listen, listeners seem to sort of connect with some of the things that we're talking about uh, with, with their child, um, find somebody who specializes in bipolar disorder. Because I'll tell you this, and I think this is really important. Specializing in bipolar doesn't mean that you're going to go to somebody and that person thinks everybody's got bipolar disorder. What's, what's that old saying that, you know, uh, to a carpenter, the whole world is a hammer or something like that, right? Uh, exactly, exactly. With all due respect to carpenters, right? Uh, but uh, it, if somebody comes to me, for example, I guess I'm an expert in bipolar, but that expertise, I think, helps me to say, no, your child does not have bipolar disorder. I believe it's something else, okay? So let's understand that expertise isn't, the, the, the final say on what that diagnosis and treatment plan would be. Or you might start with one angle and then find it something else that works better for your child as he or she kind of goes through the process. But it's important, again, to find somebody who has that expertise who can apply the right diagnosis. And parents, uh, again, I understand both as from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint, that parents may be afraid of a diagnosis, afraid of a label that follows that child around. But I would encourage your listeners to consider that while that is an important concern, it's also very important that we identify what the problem area is from a clinical standpoint to be able to apply the right treatment. And, and those discussions are pretty much what we do in that pre-stabilization phase. It's assessment, evaluation, and, and uh, working collaboratively. I work with psychiatrists and other physicians and other treatment professionals. I don't just fly solo. I work collaboratively with other treatment professionals so that we can provide a comprehensive treatment approach for that young person and for the family so that they have proper education and they don't feel left out in that process. What are some of the things that if a parent is, their children are, are dealing with this, their child is dealing with this, their teenager is going through legitimate bipolar, what are some self-care uh, uh, tactics techniques for the parents themselves as they are witnessing and watching their child go through this pre-stabilization and stabilization process of this dis-ease, this disorder. Right. So first of all, I think education, knowledge is so very important. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are so many sources of information that I think if you just peruse the internet, you're going to find a lot of misinformation. Or if you ask people who perhaps don't have personal kinds of experiences and so forth, you're just going to hear a lot of horror stories uh, that, that can persuade you, I think, in, a, in a, perhaps a negative direction. I think education 
among other things, is about balanced information, where there are indeed informed concerns and things to look out for. For example, side effects from medications are very, very important. But sometimes, you know, you read all the side effects of any medication, and, and it looks like it's the worst thing, like you're taking like poison, you know, uh, rather than something that ultimately is going to help you. So, so balanced information is so important. An opportunity for um, in-office or professional guidance, sometimes even therapy, if necessary, for members of the family, the parents, and so forth. So, uh, very often, you can have a child with bipolar disorder that's created so much disruption that it actually directly affects the, 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 the marriage itself and, and, and the viability of that marriage, putting so much pressure on how to deal with this child and maybe uh, one spouse or one parent has one idea, the other parent has another idea, or if you have blended families, then you have four, five, six ideas on what needs to be done. And there can be these chasms that develop in the family. So I think that not only education, but where appropriate, more often than not, I think it is that parents also have their own professional consultation and therapy activities to get everybody on board and on the same page and working together and heal from the effects of bipolar disorder. Just like you said, it's not just what affects the individual, it's the family that lives with it. And maybe even the larger community to some extent, schools and so forth and workplaces have to, uh, where they can be involved to understand, overcome stigma, overcome fear, and, and really get uh, the, the individual on track in a, in a healthy way. Let's answer an ease of mind question that I think a lot of families will have. Um, do bipolar medications work by and large? Is it a yes or a no? Are you frustrated with um, dependency on medications without therapeutic intervention? Do you like a mix or have you seen some meds actually really, really help? As, as that person goes through the stabilization process, it, it's not always a clean and neat kind of experience for them. Uh, sometimes people get the right medication right away and they're fine. Very often there has to be adjustments in, in dosage. Maybe you have to add one. Later you have to delete one. It's a, it's a whole process that eventually, if we work it through collaboratively and with some measure of patience uh, along with the therapy that's necessary for bipolar, we get it right and we move to post-stabilization and there's issues there too, but but uh, you know we're 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 making good progress. In general, I must say, and it's my opinion, and I believe my the research is overwhelming in this direction. In my experience, likewise, that medications are necessary for the stabilization of bipolar uh, disorder symptoms, and there's just no way around that. And I know that some people want to try alternatives; they want to see if their kid gets better on his own or her own. And I understand that, and I respect that. And I think maybe there needs to be some measure of opportunity to try certain things. But I know that, for example, herbal formulations and so forth uh, and supplements, supplements may be, be good as something supplemental, but they do not replace the benefits of medication which uh, have been tried and, and used and researched for decades now. And we know what some of those side effects are. We know what the main effects can be. We know how to manage those things pretty darn well. And um, these medications, with the exception of some anti-anxiety medications, by and large, the mood-stabilizing medications are non-addictive. You can get on them. You can get off of them. They're not going to be detrimental to the person's body or brain. 
What is detrimental, we know, is bipolar mood swings. Those cause brain damage. Really? And, like, like legitimate brain damage? Yes. We know that as a person oh. gets older in life and they're not treated, they get worse. We know that medications for bipolar disorder that are appropriate for bipolar have what we call neuroprotective effects. They actually protect the brain from the damage of extreme mood swings or psychotic symptoms in the worst form of bipolar disorder. Those things have long-term negative effects to brain development and, and the brain uh, anatomy itself and function over the long-term if untreated. So I'm always more concerned about what life is like without medication and somebody that can really, really benefit from it. Um, I'm, I, I'm always concerned about side effects and, and so forth, as I think we all are. But, but again, you know, when you look at sort of the cost benefit in a sense, you kind of like you do with a ledger, you know, what, how much is this really worth compared to what we might have to sacrifice? I think by and large, we're saving lives with the right treatment and that, and that includes the right medication. So, Michael, your book, Owning Bipolar, the full title, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. This is available on Amazon. What else are you covering in this book that is really going, that, that we need to get into parents' hands? What, what parts are we uh, can, can just touch base here in the last few minutes of our show? Sure. I have a whole section for parents to understand for themselves what they can expect from working with uh, treatment professionals and what they can bring to the table. It's not just, you know, I'm, what I really want to, for everybody to do who reads this book is to be empowered, not a passive recipient of treatment or watch the, in the case of parents, watch their children just get treatment and not feel like they're actively involved. It gives them an opportunity to really understand the dynamics of bipolar, what treatments are available and what they can bring to the treatment process themselves. Um, what they should look for, what they can hear, but also what they can bring to the table. Um, I always tell parents that I work with in, under any circumstances, I'm not here to replace them. I'm here to support them to help their child do his or her best in life. And, and, I, and there's a section, like I said, that's really important. Um, one of the things that we have to look at is denial. And that's a very powerful word. And we hear it a lot, particularly in recovery, uh, for, uh, in substance abuse treatment and, and so forth. But I think er anyone can have some measure of denial when they hear the diagnosis or they hear what's necessary for treatment. And so it's not that uh, we just turn off denial and we turn on acceptance. There's a whole process to understanding that comes through knowledge, uh, the right information, and the opportunities necessary for people to speak to how bipolar has affected them. So they don't feel left behind in that treatment process. So there's a lot of opportunities, again, for parents to be edified, uh, through knowledge through the book and other resources available to get them strong and get them on the right page, which ultimately helps their child as well. You know, Michael, I had another question that just came up and I, and I'm, I, I really want to ask this and it's a, well, well, you, you can judge for yourself on the question. Is it beneficial to kind of dig back into your genetics and find out who had bipolar, how this gene has ended up in your lineage, other than maybe reconciling the fact that your mother or father had it and it was a really brutally tough childhood because it was untreated and got worse. 
is there benefit to researching backwards or is that just kind of a cul-de-sac and we need to move forward? What are your thoughts on that? I think um, it's important to work with a treatment professional or, or uh, the, the professional that's maybe doing the evaluation uh, initially to talk about family mental health history. Um, and, and sometimes there are dead ends, if you will, but you can only know what you know, right? So if you right. don't know a ton about your, your family genetic history, or perhaps in the case somebody was adopted, they, don't, they may not right. know anything at all. Uh, but what you do know can be very, very helpful. So if you said, um, I think, you know, my, my dad seemed to have mood swings and he drank a lot, or my grandmother... Uh, everybody always said uh, that, you know, she had, she was kind of crazy and kind of nuts, you know, those aren't clinical terms. I don't use them, but people do. And, and it's kind of worthy of further investigation. Well, what does that mean? What do you understand about your grandmother or aunts or uncles or extended family members, certainly siblings, uh, especially in families that have three or more children. It, you can have two kids that have bipolar disorder at some point. Um, the odds are not uh, outlandish in that regard. So what you do know bring to that treatment professional and talk about it. And it may not even be bipolar necessarily, or maybe you don't know exactly what it was, but you know that there may have been some mental health condition in, your, in, the, in the family genetics as you know it. Please, please, please make that available to the person who may be doing the evaluation because it can really uh, present some, some good information. And, and if you don't know or you can't find out, you know, it's, it's important not to stress about that either. Um, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say like, like people are going to want to, parents are going to want to follow up with you. How are they going to find you? Uh, you can go to my website, michaelpipich.com. Michael, P-I-P-I-C-H.com. Michaelpipich.com. Uh, not only does, do you learn about me, but there's also links to my other websites, which include owningbipolar.com, where you can learn about the book and the Bipolar Network, which uh, there's a bipolarnetwork.com where you can, if you're interested in sharing stories, you can do that. We do a lot of work on Facebook as well. So Bipolar Network on Facebook, just put it in the search engine, you'll find it pretty easily. Uh, I also blog on uh, psychologytoday.com, the magazine Psychology Today. Uh, so you can uh, put me in that search engine and find me there and find articles. I, I do have one article in particular on that on that website, which is how to recognize bipolar disorder in children. So you get a little bit more information coming out of our discussion today. So there's different places to find me, but michaelpipich.com, you'll find everything else, okay? Michael, uh, stay on the line for a second as I sign us off. Uh, Michael Pipich, uh, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Uh, it's got great reviews and Parents, you need to go check this out. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time and expertise on this. This, is a, this was a show I knew it was going to be good and filled with the information parents need to have. Thank you for putting things so eloquently. Well, thank you so much for having me on again. Hang on just for a second, okay? Parents, this mental health thing, this addiction thing in children, we can feel like we are losing our own sanity. And it brings up so much. It brings up resentment. It brings up fear. It brings up so much shame and guilt. It brings up hope. It brings up uh, just sadness. 
some of the things that Michael was saying about, about getting educated, connecting with a support community, when he talked about being in collaboration with the experts so that he could do his work, I want you to hear the wisdom in that and do that your dang self. Be in collaboration with other parents who are going through it. Uh, get on uh, a Bipolar Network on Facebook. Find communities who are dealing with this. Pick up the book because you're going to read stuff that makes you go, oh, I am not terminally unique. My child is not terminally unique. This is something we can deal with. This is something we can handle. This is something my child will grow up and learn how to handle his or herself. Take the input. This is why I wanted Michael back. As always, doing things in this way, this is how we take care of ourselves. I know I say this every single show, but taking care of yourself first, this can be like you getting support, like you reaching out to another parent or you reading a book, it, a moment of quietude where you're gaining education. That is self-care. Take care of your adult relationship Michael does counseling. Michael does marriage counseling and couples counseling because he understands that when, when the family's going through it, it's hard on a relationship. So you need to tend to your relationship. And when you've done those two things, you can do the third thing, and that's take care of your children. Because in that way, you're going to do your best work with the kids. I want to thank Mental Health News Radio Network and our boss goddess, Kristen Walker, for her love and support of the show. And parents, if you have any questions about your child needing residential care, you can contact Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, 303-443-3343, extension 204. That's our admissions office. The call is free, and we will help you with an assessment to navigate this stressful time. Thank you, parents, for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast in places all over the world. I so appreciate your love, liking, subscribing, and sharing to our show. Special thanks to Michael Pippich, our guest. And again, the book is Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. We'll see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you so much, parents, for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. If you have seen Beyond Risk and Back on any of the five major social media sites, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. Your Cause Consulting specializes in marketing companies that have something going on bigger than just running their business. They have a cause. If you'd like to contact Your Cause Consulting, go to yourcauseconsulting at gmail.com. All the sound and the music was engineered and created by Deepin Productions. To reach Deepin Productions, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. This is Aaron Huey. Parents, remember to take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third. In that way, we do our best work with our children. We'll talk again soon.